I'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture this morning, Revelation chapter 1 and Acts chapter 19. We started uh, last Sunday morning, if you were with us, you may recall that we started a new series on uh, the seven letters to the church, churches, and um, uh, we are going through the first, going to be going through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation regarding that subject. But we, uh, we covered, uh, we haven't gotten to the letters yet. We spent most of our time, uh, or all of our time really, last Sunday morning in uh, the first chapter of Revelation. And we'll probably do that again this morning. Because I think in order for the letters to become real to us, we need to understand the setting in which they were written and the things surrounding the, the, uh, the introduction to the letters. Things that uh, the readers and the hearers of the day that it was given would understand clearly, but that we do not. So uh, really to get the most out of what we're going to say this morning, it would be good for you to hear what's been said before. Um, and so if you weren't with us, I encourage you to get a hold of the, the MP3 or the tape or however you like to listen. Uh, it'll, I, I believe it will make more sense to you. Uh, Revelation was given to John in about 94 A.D. John was in his 90s exiled to the island of Patmos and as a man in his 90s, early to mid-90s, uh, we, we understand um, he was taken from his hilltop home overlooking the city of Ephesus as a political prisoner by the Roman emperor Domitian. He was presented to the, the emperor and charged with uh, subverting or subversion uh, against the Roman government. Now, there was a way out for him, and that was the same as uh, was available for every Christian that was uh, held on such a charge, and that is if they would confess that Caesar was Lord, if they would just acknowledge that Caesar was God in the flesh, deity, as all Romans were required to do at that time. The last uh, Roman emperor that that refused to uh, be acknowledged as God in the flesh was Claudius. He was the emperor that was uh, uh, the Caesar when Paul was in his uh, most of his ministry. He was the one just before Nero. But when Nero came on the scene in A.D. 59, then uh, then every uh, Caesar after that went along with the idea that um, that Caesar was God here on the earth. So as Christians, if you would acknowledge Caesar as Lord, then you could. Uh, avoid any punishment as a political uh, undermining the Roman government, however you'd say that. But uh, John, of course, wouldn't do that. And so Domitian um, put John in a vat of boiling oil. And he did it in his presence so he could watch him die because John was the last remaining apostle of the Lamb, the, of the last remaining 12 apostles. And most of the other church fathers had, uh, first-generation church fathers had gone off the scene as well. So John was the most famous Christian on the earth at that time. Well, John didn't die in that battle boiling oil. It didn't harm him at all. When the time was up, or whatever point in time John decided, he just stepped out of the battle boiling oil and he was unharmed. Well, what does Caesar do then? Domitian, out of fear, sent him to the island of Patmos, 
which was known as an, uh, an island of exile. It's a prison island. There were two types of prisoners that were there on, those, uh, on that island. One would be a common criminal, and they would be worked, slave labor type of work uh, in, on that uh, island. But the other class of prisoner was uh, the political prisoner. They were pretty much left alone on their own without any provision. It was very much a desert and a rocky island, and there wasn't much to eat and uh, much food to scrounge up. And so they expected that the, that the political prisoners over a period of time would just starve to death and, and uh, uh, die in that manner. So John uh, inhabits a cave on the island of Patmos, and Jesus appears to him. Now, at the time that this takes place, it was a great a time of great persecution of the church. There were different uh, what we might call waves or, or phases or times of persecution. This was one of the, the great ones that was taking place when, uh, when John was exiled to Patmos. The, uh, the best estimates we can give you is that he spent up to about 18 months on this island of Patmos, this prison island, and uh, then he came off the island, was pardoned when Domitian died, and uh, um, he, along with uh, all the other prisoners, political prisoners on the island of Patmos were released. Um, this time of persecution against the church, it's kind of hard for us to relate to, uh, to some of the terminology in the New Testament because the Bible talks a lot about idolatry. Well, we don't know much about idolatry. I mean, we, we have people that say, well, TV can become an idol. Well, anything beca- can become an idol. But that's not what the, the New Testament talks about. The New Testament is talking about temples where there are statues to false gods and so forth. Well, that's kind of a foreign concept to us. But uh, if, we, if we understand a little bit more of the world, the pagan world in which they lived in the, in the day that the New Testament was written, I think the Bible comes alive to us a little bit more. In Athens, Greece... There are historical records and archaeological finds that identify that there were three, uh, I'm sorry, 30,000 idols and or temples to those false gods. Ephesus was not far behind. Ephesus was uh, the fourth great city of the world, Rome being the first, Alexandria and, uh, I started to say Alexandria, Virginia, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Alexandria, Egypt was the second. Antioch in Syria was the third, and then Ephesus was the fourth great city. And as such, Ephesus was lined on their streets and, and um, uh, ornately uh, decorated colonnades and so forth, just temple after temple after temple. And as such, the, the church was, um, when you became saved, when you got, uh, got saved and became a Christian in New Testament times, Everything changed. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to believers in the New Testament. And we understand that it means holy ones. But the root of the word saints is the, is the word different. And the church experienced a lot of persecution just because they were different. You might well understand that becoming a Christian would change a lot about your business opportunities. Because if you're a mason, you might be called on to build, a, a, or, build or repair a wall of a temple to a false god. What do you do? You can't participate in that. A tailor might be called on to uh, uh, produce or make a garment for a pagan priest. Um, 
there were all kinds of things. Well, even, even working, you might think that working with the sick, working in a hospital-type situation, medical profession, might be a, a, a good thing to do, an honorable thing to do. But in the pagan hospitals, they were dedicated to false gods, gods of healing, so to speak. Even school teachers were required to teach about the ancient gods and keeping of rituals and so forth. So just becoming a Christian changed just about everything in the socio and economic areas of life. You couldn't participate in a lot of the, the normal activities of the city. Gladiatorial conquests were considered to be inhumane, and they certainly were. And so Christians didn't participate, didn't attend those. Normal feasts and, and festivals and so forth always began with prayers to pagan gods, and so Christians wouldn't participate in those. So you can well understand that the average guy out there, the average unsaved pagan, God-worshipping, multi-God-worshipping unbeliever, is looking at the Christian and saying, what happened to Job or Claudius or whatever his name is? What happened to him? Ever since he got this, this Christianity thing, we never see him anymore. He's off to himself. He's off with that new, new group of friends. And so Christianity was thought because it was a, uh, a private thing. There weren't open services like we are accustomed to today. And um, because of the, the, uh, uh, the hatred that developed against church and Christianity. And so many of the services were closed. They were um, held in secret. And the secrecy just added to the mystery of what the unsaved thought the Christians were doing. The two greatest charges leveled against Christianity, and it developed uh, more and more over the years and throughout several centuries, was that during the services they were having sexual orgies and cannibalism. Now, here's where that came from. They called their services love feasts. And Paul even wrote to the church to greet one another with a holy kiss. And so the unsaved would take things like that, not ever having attended a service, and their minds would run wild with them on things that were going on. And so the church was being accused of all kinds of crazy stuff during their services. The cannibalism came from the Lord's Supper. All they heard... All the, the unbelievers heard was that these Christians talk about eating the Lord's flesh and drinking his blood. So something's going on there. And this mass hysteria would sweep through city after city after city. And so Christianity kind of became the cloak for any kind of possible crime that was being committed or any kind of secret thing that, uh, um, that would be considered subverting or subversion to the Roman society. Now, I want you to notice something here in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 tells us about when Paul was in Ephesus. Paul went to Ephesus in 52 AD, so this is a, a good 42 years maybe before the revelation is given to John. There's a different, uh, uh, different emperor. Claudius is the emperor, and so there's not a time of persecution in the city of Ephesus like, uh, like there was in John's day. Or at least when John received the revelation. He was there for a long time. So I guess we have to define our terms. But I want you to see some things. It says that um, after Paul uh, found a group of people, talked to them. They were certainly interested in the Lord. He talked to them, got them saved, uh, got them filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice it says in verse 8, it says, And he went, this is after getting 12 people saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months 
disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, longest period of time that we have record of that Paul was in any, in any one location. Now, folks, there's a reason why the Bible gives us more information about what happened in Ephesus than anywhere else. This can't be just casual information. And the reason is because something historic is going to take place in the city of Ephesus. It's going to affect the church from that point forward for centuries. This continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Please notice that last phrase. So that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. These seven churches that Paul gets revelation, uh, information about to deliver letters to, are seven churches in Asia. In other words, what this means is every one of the seven churches that Jesus is going to address in in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, the church of Sardis, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Thyatira, Laodicea, Ephesus, and Pergamum, I guess that's all seven of them. All those churches were started while Paul was ministering in Ephesus during these two and a half years. Actually, if you add up the time that he was there before, it speaks of this. He was there maybe up to three and a half years. The longest period of time he was ever in one location. And it was instrumental or significant, the time that he was there, because these seven churches in Asia, if nothing else happened, the seven churches in Asia were established. It's what we know of as modern-day Turkey. But these seven churches were all established and founded, not by Paul himself, but by somebody that was either with Paul's company or saved under Paul's ministry. They were all started by somebody at that period of time. We told you before that seven churches kind of make a circle, not an exact circle, but kind of a circular uh, route. The Roman roads goes from one to the other just in the exact order that Jesus gives the letters to John. In other words, anybody that was visiting Asia, if there was a traveling uh, salesman, so to speak, going to sell his ware from city to city, he would follow the same track of the, of the list that Jesus gave to John. It was a common thing. It was a common road. It was a common occurrence for somebody to make that circuit. So all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord in these two years. We think of Asia as the giant continent. But Asia, as spoken of in the Bible, is what, what might be known as in other places is Asia Minor. It's the modern-day geographic area that we know of as Turkey, the country of Turkey. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. You ever wonder what a special miracle was? That's as opposed to your ordinary miracle. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Notice they don't know Jesus themselves. They just know that the name of Jesus has power when Paul uses it. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the spirit was leaped on them and overcame them, all seven of them, 
and prevailed against them, all seven of them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on, on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Well, that's great, but what does it do in the city of Ephesus? Notice the effect it has on the city and the church there. Now, up to that point, it's the greatest revival Paul's ever had. I mean, if we didn't have anything else on record in the, that happened as a result of the story, we'd say, have to say that this is the greatest ministry result that Paul's ever had in any city that he's been in. In a two-year period of time, seven churches at least, and there are two other churches that we know of, uh, Colossae and Hierapolis. They're in the, the region of, of uh, Asia as well. We know those churches were founded at the same time because it would be part of this same geographic area. So if nothing else has happened, we would have to say that Paul's already had the greatest ministry success of any short period like this in, in uh, on record. But notice what happens after People find out that Paul's got the power and the seven sons don't. Verse 18. And many that believed. Many that believed. In other words, many of the church. Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Depending on the uh, value of silver, it's anywhere from 4 to $8 million. Can I ask you a question? What in the world are believers doing with occult practices and, and fetishes and ritual stuff? Now, here's what you need to understand. That would not be uncommon to the pagan way of thinking because they worshipped everything. They'd go to town, certainly in a big city like Ephesus. They'd go to town and they'd stop and burn incense to the, to the fire god. They'd stop and burn incense to the sun god. They'd stop and burn incense to the rain god. They'd stop and burn incense to every other god that they might have passed or that might have anything to do with their lifestyle. They're used to work, worshiping anything and everything. So when Paul comes to town and preaches Jesus, they just accept Jesus as somebody else to offer sacrifice to or incense, or, or say what you're supposed to say, or whatever the case might be. He's just incorporated into the rest of the, the, the stuff that they're worshiping until they see the power in the name of Jesus. Folks, there's only one thing that's ever going to turn the world around, and that's to see the power of the name of Jesus at work in the church. It's the only thing that ever has worked. It's the only thing that ever will work. Now, notice verse 18 again. It says, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. The end result of what they bring and burn and get rid of, verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Notice the word doesn't prevail until you turn loose of everything else in your life. Can you see that? Now, the important thing is verse 18 because historically, the important thing is verse 18 because they came, confessed, and showed their deeds. What that means is simply this. For the first time ever in a public setting, a whole group, thousands 
of people. We don't know exactly how many. We do know that the city of Ephesus was anywhere from 250,000 to, uh, to uh, 500,000 people, the population. There are estimates from writings that at one time at least half the city was Christian. So that could be up to 250,000 people. We don't know how many are involved in this crowd at this time. Everybody wouldn't get saved at once, you understand. So the church would grow as it goes, I guess. So we don't know how many people are involved, but it's a significant thing because one person or even a small group of people, there's no way that they'd be able to collect tokens and ritual practices and occult stuff that would value or add up to this amount that it's valued at. It's got to be a lot of people. Got to be a lot of people. And up to this point, it's the first time where Christianity is changing the economic structure of a city. Because now, here's a large group of people, thousands of people, that are publicly confessing, we're not into worshiping everything else now. It's a major event. It's something that would certainly get the attention of the Romans. It would certainly get the attention of the city leaders. For the first time, Christianity is something that's standing on its own with the Romans. Now, let me explain that. The idea that you had to worship Caesar was universal throughout the Roman Empire, but it was not compulsory. It was not something, at least at this point in time, it was not something where you could be put to death for not worshiping Caesar. It became that way in John's day. But at the time that Paul is in Ephesus, it's one of the things where everybody knows you should to show your loyalty to the Roman government. But it's not something that they'll cut your head off for yet. They do later on. Now, there is one group of people that they always made an exception for, and that's the Jews. They knew that the Jews would be willing to turn their land into a bloody wasteland before they'd confess allegiance or worship to anybody other than their God. So the Jews were always an exception for the Romans. That's one reason the Romans hated them so much, because they could not bring them under their total control. And so they would make exceptions to the Romans for anything having to do with worship. By and large, the Jews or the uh, the Romans were tolerant of other religions because every time they conquer a, a nation or a, a region, they just incorporate their gods in with everybody else's gods. And most of the people that were conquered were willing to to give pay homage to Caesar, because after all, he did whip us. He did defeat us and our armies and so forth. Like I said, the Jews were the only exception. As long as Christianity was considered to be a part of Judaism, which remember the church started in Jerusalem. Most of the church was Jewish to begin with. But once the church started to spread out into the Gentile world and the Jews began to fight against Christianity, then the Romans recognized that Christians are not just a part of Jews who we've already made an exception for. Why do we want to make an exception for them? And they didn't. And so it put the target on the back of Christianity. And they bore the brunt of the persecution. Decade after decade and century after century. 
That was the condition in which the revelation was given. You remember the, the end of the story. We won't read the rest of the chapter. But very soon after, the silversmiths and those that make idols and these tokens, these things that the other people, that the crowd of people has just gotten rid of to worship Diana. And the temple of Diana was in the city of Ephesus. is one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. And it was uh, reported to be the greatest of the seven wonders. Greater than the pyramids. Greater than the hanging gardens of Babylon. Greater than all the other, whatever other else made up the list at the time. And so it was a, it was a world-renowned thing. The city was very proud of being known as having the t- being the home of the temple of Diana. So when the economic system begins to be upset, and now people that have been worshiping all their lives at the temple of Diana are publicly confessing and showing their deeds and saying we're not going to anymore, it gets people's attention. The first people that rise up were the businessmen, the silversmiths. And it creates a great uproar in the city, a mob riot that was quieted down only by the city leaders. Paul wanted to go in and explain his cause in the city leaders. One of the, the influential people in the city was Paul's friend, the Bible says, and would not let him go into to the place because they were afraid that the mob would tear him limb from limb. So instead, he was taken by Roman guard to the Hellenist barracks overlooking the city where they could protect him from the mob, and then he left town the next day. This is what the condition is in the city of Ephesus in 52, 54 A.D., some 40 years before the Revelation. Now, the church gets a lot of criticism for, for example, not speaking out against slavery. People look at the Bible and say, well, the Bible's full of slavery and the Bible doesn't condemn slavery and the Bible this, that, and the other. We need to realize Christianity could not speak out against slavery. Christianity could not try to abolish slavery, take any action to try to abolish slavery without, in effect, declaring war on the Roman Empire. Because slavery was a a part of the Roman Empire. It's part of the culture of the day. Christianity, however, did make a very distinct difference between being a good master or a good slave and an evil one. In fact, in the church in John's day, certainly in John's day, uh, to, a, to a limited degree in Paul's day, but certainly by John's day, there are slaves that would be leaders of the church. You might have a situation where both the slave and his master were part of a church in a certain city. Well, any time other than at church or in church-related matters, it's very easy to see who's the master and who's the slave. But when it came to church dealings, many times the slaves would be picked by God and equipped by God to be leaders in the church. So the the masters, the slave masters, the slave owners might be subject to their own slaves in the church. There's uh, uh, one historical record of a freed slave. He wound up being freed later on. But a freed slave that became the bishop of the church at Rome. And he was a slave for much of the time when he was uh, in church leadership. And finally, his master just turned him loose and let him go obey God. Another thing that the church gets a bad rap for is its dated ideas on sex and marriage and and, uh, uh, what the world considers to be limited ideas and and 
restricted ideas and closed-mindedness and so forth. But you've got to realize, in the day that the Bible was written, in the day that the New Testament was written, the only people that treated their bodies as a holy temple or holy instrument was the church. The only ones that had any family dedication was Christianity. Without the Christian teaching of sex and marriage that might seem outdated and archaic to some, humanity might have died out. If it was left to the Romans, it certainly would have. Not only that, but the Romans and the culture of the day was such that if you didn't want a child, you just took it out in the woods and left it there to die. Well, Christianity didn't stand for that. And so it made a difference. All of these things are distinct differences in the way that the Roman lifestyle, the average everyday Roman lifestyle took place. And so it marked the church as being different. So by just being different, it brought attention to the pagan way of life and it showed the destruction that was ahead for the unbelievers. Now, folks, you need to understand something. That is, we hear a lot nowadays about should a Christian baker have to bake a cake for a gay wedding and provide flowers for gay weddings and stuff like that. That's lightweight stuff to what the early church had to live with. Lightweight stuff. You need to realize that the work of the devil has always been the same. And that's trying to dominate man to keep him from obeying the will of God. Always. And the question has to be answered somewhere at some time in every person's life. What's the line that I draw in the sand? It was pretty clear what the early church had to do or not do in order to live their faith in Jesus. It's not so clear for us today because we don't, ex- we don't experience the same kind of pressure they did. But for them, it was a very obvious issue. There were questions Paul deals with in his writings. Uh, he deals with the issue of eating meats offered to idols. Where do you draw the line there? Well, Paul said it really doesn't matter, but don't offend somebody else's conscience. And so Paul obviously had to deal with this stuff. He had to think these things through. He had to come to an understanding of what is and what isn't okay. Because Christianity in the early days of the church meant a separate lifestyle. Nowadays, the world isn't under conviction like the Roman citizens were. The world isn't under conviction because the church doesn't live anything. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. (laughs) It's absolutely the truth. You can't tell if some people are saved or not. Don't you think the world ought to at least be able to tell? Well, they had to be able to tell in their day. Talking about the day of the New Testament. Now, with that having been said, Paul is on the Isle of Patmos and he receives the revelation of Jesus. Look with me to Revelation chapter 1 now. The revelation of Jesus is pretty serious because of the way Jesus appears. I want to read through some things that we saw before. Oh, by the way, while you're turning there, let me make mention of this as well. We all interpret the book of Revelation in our modern day understanding. 
So when the book of Revelation was given to the seven churches, the churches in Asia, I don't know how it was disseminated or distributed from there. We just know that it went to the seven churches first and foremost. So we don't know what the time frame was for anybody else getting the information, but they got it as soon as John got uh, was released from the island sometime in 94 A.D. Um, the Bible talks about two great operations of the devil. One is the Antichrist and his government, and the other is the false religion. How do you think the churches in Asia, living in the day of persecution that they were in, would interpret what those two things meant or represented? Rome and idol worship. And it talks about how that the believers overcame the work of the devil in the earth by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So it would make them, if they gave heed to it, it would inspire them to dig in even more and be even more obvious in their difference and distinction from the world. I wonder if it should have the same effect for us. Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 10. Paul said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And this is that circular route I was telling you about unto Ephesus. Ephesus was always the, the gateway city to Asia. It was on the coast. Unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet burned like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his hand, right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Now, this, let me uh, um, back up and make a couple of comments. First of all, I want you to understand, this is not the Jesus that, Paul, that uh, John has ever seen before. John followed him for three years in ministry. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the one that sat closest to him at the Lord's Supper. He was the one that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to who lived with John at Ephesus for many years. He had a special place. He was younger than any of the others so he had a, and he had a special place in Jesus' heart. Remember, we, uh, we quote a lot of times or refer a lot of times to Matthew chapter 11, I think it is, verse 28, 29, somewhere around there where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that are, that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's usually the way most of us see Jesus as the comforting one. He says, for my, take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's usually the way most of us see Jesus. Well, thank God he is that way. Thank God he is the comforter for us as individuals when we need comfort. And being yoked up with him is not a problem. If you think serving God is hard, 
then you're trying to do it on your own strength rather than being hooked up with him. But that's not the way Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared. How would we describe Jesus' appearance here? We couldn't say that it was as a warrior. But we could certainly say that it was as a conqueror. Jesus has hair white as wool. Eyes flames of fire. And out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. Now the word that Paul the word that John uses here is the same word that Paul uses talking about the sword of the spirit over in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a special sword that the Roman government had, the Roman army had, that was so sharp and constructed in such a way that it would pierce through most other armies, enemy army, army, enemy armies, armor. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't say that even slow. It would pierce through, cut through most of the armor that they'd faced when their enemies were wearing. It was a dreaded weapon. It was probably the most dreaded weapon, close combat weapon on the face of the earth of that day. And that's what Jesus has. Now, Jesus, in his appearance, is certainly showing that he is warlike. Why? Because he's appearing in his relationship to the church. And not just church universal specific churches that John is the spiritual father and overseer of. Now, before I go any further, let me talk about something. Um, I'm going to turn. You can join me if you want to. But I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because even though Paul's talking about himself, it's going to have a relevance, I believe, to to something in uh, um, John's experience too. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is writing to the church and he's mad to have to write it. He's talking about false teachers, false apostles, people that have come into the church at at Corinth and have disrupted things and and, uh, in many ways uprooted the work that he did and destroyed some of the, the work that he did by establishing the church. So he's talking and comparing himself angrily to these false apostles trying to get their attention. Now, Paul's intent, his desire certainly, would be that they would be spiritually mature enough to to know right doctrine so they wouldn't fall for wrong doctrine. But then, as well as now, believers, Christians are naive. They fall for somebody and what they claim to be their credentials or whatever the case might be. So Paul is, uh, like I said, he's got uh, an attitude about it. He says... Beginning in verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, talking about beatings that he took, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman enforcer. Roman city's enforcer's job. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often in perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils by my own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. Brother Hagin used to read this list. And he'd stop there and he'd say, that's the worst one of all. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, 
beside those things that are without, external in other words, besides those things that come at me from the outside, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that when he is separated from the churches, and obviously he can be in one place at a time, when he'd leave a city to go to the next place, he would be deeply concerned. And the word care for the churches is literally the word anxiety. It's the very same word that Peter uses where he says, casting the whole of your care upon him, for he cares for you in 1 Peter 5, 7. So Paul is saying, please get this. Paul doesn't try to hide his, his struggles. He doesn't try to hide what the devil does to try to get him off track. He doesn't try to act like he's some super spiritual somebody that never has problems with the devil. Now, that's usually the way we think. We usually look at people that, that we perceive to be greater Christians than we are or a higher stature with God or whatever the case might be, however you describe that. And we usually think, well, they don't have the problems to deal with that I do. When the reality that is they have your problems plus more. Because of the very things that we perceive that put them in a higher place with God than we are. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, I've had all these experiences, all these external experiences, but they didn't come every day. Paul wasn't in prison every day. Paul wasn't shipwrecked every day. He wasn't beaten every day. He wasn't hungry and cold every day. But the one thing that he said he dealt with every day was anxiety for the churches. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Paul was a failure as a Christian. Paul's the one that wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Root of the same word. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace that passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are good, pure, lovely, honest, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. How do you think Paul learned that? Dealing every day with the care of the churches. Now, if that was the case with Paul, don't you imagine it would be the same with John? He's on the Isle of Patmos, separated from everybody he knows, with the exception of one person. There's one person on the island that he knew beforehand that came with him. Procurus, who literally tied himself to Paul as a slave. Uh, I said Paul, I meant John. Tied himself to John as a slave, willingly, so that he could attend to him in his old age. He's on the Isle of Patmos with him. Procurus was one of the original seven deacons in Acts chapter 6. He's there on the island helping take care of John too. But outside of that, John doesn't know a living soul except the people that he met there on the island. Now, what do you think the devil would be telling John about the time that he separated? How is he at Patmos? Because he wouldn't confess Caesar as Lord. What happened to him when he wouldn't? He was thrown in a vat of boiling oil. What do you think the devil's telling him is happening to these pastors that he's the spiritual father of at these seven churches? Well, they're either dead by now or they've given up. They backslidden. They turned away. Well, what would happen to those churches if those pastors had fallen into either death or backslidden condition. Well, the church was scattered. The devil's telling him all kinds of stuff, just like he would be you and me. There's nothing left. 
You might as well give up and just die here on the island. There's absolutely nothing left. And then what happens? Jesus shows up. Not with the long brown hair and the smiling eyes or the open hands saying, come to me. He shows up as the conqueror in the middle of the churches holding the seven stars in his right hand. John says, I'll pick up Revelation chapter 1 again. John picks up the story, verse 17. He said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. There's no leaning on his breast at this time. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John doesn't run up to him and hug him and say, oh, Jesus, I've missed you so much. Remember, I'm the one you loved. I fell at his feet as dead. There's one thing you learn, is, uh, one thing your children learn, one thing you want your children to learn. You want your children to learn that you always love them. But there are t- sometimes where you want your children to learn, now is not the time for you to talk. I can pull it off with a look. It always works with my daughter. Sometimes works with my son. But there are some times where you want your kids to understand. Now is not the time to treat me like dad. John said, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. He didn't have to ask, uh, Jesus, can I talk to you? He knew now is not the time for me to do anything. He said, lay down here and play dead. <laughs> and I don't think that was willingly. I don't think he chose to lay down. I think it was just Boom. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Why does he say fear not first? Because he's saying, I'm not here in my warrior form, my conqueror form, because of you. I'm here for the benefit of the churches, not to bring destruction on you. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. When God says amen, it means it. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen. And the things which are. And the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars. At which thou sawest in my right hand. And the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. Seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest. Are the seven churches. Now. We've talked before. This word angel is the word messenger. It's literally referring to the pastors of those churches. But there's. uh, There's something that's a little blind to us from the translation. And that is this. We know that Jesus appeared and he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. He's holding the seven pastors in his right hand. If you're sitting close enough to me, you can see that I've got a pen in my hand. Right? Well, you certainly have to say that I'm holding it. Correct? But you can also see that the the hold that I have on it is such that just about anybody could snatch it out of my hand. Or you could slap at it and maybe cause it to fall out of my hand. That's not the word that's used for holding the seven stars in his hand. The word that's used is the Greek word uh, that means strength. Started to try to say it and then I got smart. (laughs) It's a Greek word that means strength. It's used throughout the New Testament. It's translated strength or power or something to that effect. It literally means a tight-fisted grip. 
Now, if somebody tried to take this out of my hands, you couldn't get it. If somebody tried to slap it, it would have no effect on it whatsoever. When John appear, when Jesus appears to John, John sees Jesus. Jesus has the seven stars tightly gripped in his hand. This word "kroteo" in the Greek that's translated uh, "hold," which means strength, means to gain control of. It means to seize. It means to continue to hold. It means to retain. Now, Jesus has just appeared as the strong man of the universe, holding the seven stars in his tight-fisted grip. Now, when John writes this letter to the churches, these people that he's concerned about obviously would be concerned about. I mean, his first thought would be, well, if they did this to me, who are they going after next? The obvious answer would be the pastors of these seven churches. The devil's smart enough to know if you smite the shepherds, the sheep will scatter. So when John is, is having whatever he is dealing with, as we could imagine, on the Isle of Patmos without any contact with anybody, and Jesus appears, the first thing that he sees is these seven stars are in his hand, tight-fisted grip. And in effect, it's saying, John, just because you're with, not with them doesn't mean I'm not with them. You may not be able to contact them. You may not be able to encourage them. You may not be able to be a spiritual father to them. But don't worry. I'm right in the middle of the churches and I'm holding tightly onto these pastors. And when John sends a letter to the churches and the pastors who are in the midst of this persecution and trouble on every hand, some churches more than others, but all of them experiencing some part of persecution. When they get this message where John says, hey, by the way, Jesus appeared to me while I was in exile. And I saw him right in the middle of the churches and he had you in his tight-fisted grip. You think that would encourage you? It would me. It certainly would me. Now there's one final thought I want to bring and then we'll close with this. Next week we'll get into the letters. But I want to bring something out. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Chapter 2. Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works for else I will come unto thee quickly. Look at verse um, 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. Should have marked these. Just going down looking at chapter 3. Look at verse 11. I don't think I've gotten all of these, but here's the last one that we'll use for an example. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that, that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. There's one thing about the early church that, that frankly is missing from the modern day church. And that is they had an understanding, a belief, an expectancy of the imminent return of Jesus. Now, why don't we? Um, 
I think there's some things that we can learn from those that went before us. I like to read after and study after people that followed God in previous generations. And one of the things that uh, that's always struck me is that there was a time, you may not be old enough to even remember this. There's not too many people that are old enough that can. But there was a time where the church was very, very heavily criticized because all it did was talk about heaven. There's a, a, a pastor's wife that was in her 90s that uh, told a good friend of mine this and she told, him, told him personally, and he related the story to me. Well, it was uh, Sister Goodwin. Uh, J.R. and Sister Goodwin, brother, brother and Sister Goodwin was the people that Brother Hagin said that he used to travel 100 miles out of the way, drive 100 miles out of the way to, to fellowship with them because they had uh, an understanding of spiritual things that like nobody else he'd ever met. Well, she said he died many, many years before she did, and she was in her 90s when she went home to be with the Lord. And she said this. She said, you know, in the early days, you know, just coming out of depression days as, as kids and and things were kind of slow to get moving and technology wasn't what it was or what it is now and, and that kind of thing. She said, we didn't have anything. All we had was to talk about heaven. She said, nowadays kids have got smartphones and tablets and everybody's got computers and technology and all this kind of stuff. She said, don't get me wrong. I, I, I see and appreciate the convenience of it. And she said, but I'm concerned for the church because there are so many distractions There's so many things to pull you in so many different directions. Nowadays, you go to church to find out what's in it for you. How to be blessed, how to walk in victory. And those are all important things. We want to be blessed and want to walk in victory while we're here. But she said there was something about having our eyes on heaven that the modern day church has lost. Now, I don't know why that is. I I don't know if it's because... We're just so comfortable we don't care. But any pastor that I've talked to that's spiritual enough to care for his people, and by that I mean pray for his church and, and, you know, seek the plan of God for them and so forth, there is one overriding concern that they have, that they all have, and I fall into this category too. And that is, and this is not to a person, there are obviously exceptions to this, but every church has to deal with it to some degree. And that is the general lack of commitment to the things of God. Now, folks, you're better than most. And hearing some of these guys talk and tell about their experiences and some of the stuff they're dealing with in their church, I'm thrilled that I don't have to deal with it. I'm thrilled that I have people that are committed to God and and so forth. But the average church attendance is once every two or three weeks. Do you think there's any way that the early church, the church in John's day, the church under persecution could get by with that kind of attitude or commitment to God? Not a chance. It was a lifeline for them. Like it's supposed to be for us. We go when it's convenient. We go when the football game comes comes on late enough in the day. You know, let's see, the football game comes at 12.05. What time is it now? <laughs> Pastor Mike, you, you better hurry. We've got to eat and get done before. You can watch it with our TV program. Our TV program goes up and down with sports shows. When the playoffs are going on at the same time as our TV program, numbers are down. 
when when it's not, our numbers are up. And you got a lot of people that won't go to church at all. They're just watching TV. Now, I understand for some people that's the only way that they can do it, and that's fine. That, you know, if, you got to do what you can do. But there are a lot of people that are just using it as an excuse not to be committed to the things of God. The early church had an expectancy for Jesus to come back now. I would submit to you that we have even more reason to believe that than they did. Let me close with uh, um, let me close with Hebrews chapter ten. I know I can't get it all said this morning, so there's no point in trying. There's a there's a, a word that's used in First Corinthians chapter sixteen verse twenty two that perplexes um, Bible scholars. It's the word Maranatha. It's a word that means the Lord is at hand. Now here's the perplexing part. It's an Aramaic word. Why would Paul choose an Aramaic word in a Greek letter to a Greek church? There's only one explanation for it, and that is that word which meant the Lord is at hand was a byword and a password for the early church. In times of great persecution, the password to get into the secret services, which many times, at least at certain periods, were held in catacombs in the tombs under the cities, was Maranatha. It was a greeting. It was a departure, a departing, say so long word. It took the place of the Hebrew word shalom for the Jews. And it means the Lord is at hand. They were constantly reminding themselves and being reminded that Jesus' return is imminent. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 22. Paul said, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Thank God he is. And let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and to good works. Now I want you to notice something. Paul's talking about holding fast the profession of your faith. Because God's faithful who promised. Most of us understand the use of faith for what we need from God. And that's as far as most people's faith ever goes. Just what do I need to believe God for me? But notice that Paul connects the profession of your faith, holding fast the profession of your faith with. He says, in the same manner and in equal measure that you hold fast the profession of your faith to receive whatever you need from God or whatever you're using your faith for, consider each other, not just yourselves, but consider one another. To what end? To provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You cannot be what God wants you to be if you're not connected with other believers. I don't care how strong in faith you think you are or somebody thinks they are. I don't mean you as an individual. At least I hope I don't. 
But no matter how strong in faith somebody thinks they are because they've heard every teacher preach faith in every format possible, you cannot be what God wants you to be unless you're connected to other people. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. People haven't changed, folks. People haven't changed. There have always been those who thought their job was to do it on their own. The problem is that's not God's will. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, encouraging one another, in other words. And so much the more... As you see the day approaching. In other words, it means this. And I believe this is the way it works. The more and more you believe, truly believe Jesus is coming back, the more and more attached you get to other believers in the fellowship, the family of God. That's what the early church had. They had a constant reminder They were constantly reminding each other. Every time they'd say hello, Maranatha, the Lord's at hand. And Jesus seems to fuel that idea in the letters he sends to them. He says, I'm coming quickly. If it was quick in John's day in 94 AD. By the way, I I skipped over this. Let me add this in just real quickly. There's two times in the first uh, 10 or 12 verses. Verse 4 and again in about verse 11, something like that, where John says, talks of Jesus as the one who was, who is, and is to come. That is to come is a bad translation. It literally is, is coming. And the difference is this. It's an action word. Jesus tells John, I am in the process of coming. Jesus is not in heaven eating bonbons waiting for the word. The signal so he can go, get up and go. Everything that's happening is happening as a part of the process of his coming for the church. That's what that means. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Folks, I don't believe there's any greater plan or purpose in God's end time event calendar than the church drawing together. More and more as we see Jesus coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing to us the fact that Jesus is coming soon. No, forgive me, Lord. I don't want to say it that way anymore. Thank you that Jesus is coming, is in the process of coming. We thank you, Lord. That because he is, we can have the confidence that you're standing in the midst of our church and that you have us in your tight-fisted grip too. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We see in your word, Lord, that the only thing you're waiting for is for the precious fruit of the earth. And you have long patience for it until you receive the early and the latter rain. For us, it seems to come down to the same thing over and over again, Lord. So we ask you for the rain. 
We ask you to move by the Spirit of God. We ask that the glory of God would be seen. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us. And not just us, but upon every church that names the name of Jesus. Both in our country and in every country on the face of the earth. We pray, Father, for the outpourings of the Spirit of God that you said you'd give us. Outpourings of revelation gifts. Outpourings of utterance gifts. Outpourings of power gifts. That signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us boldness, Father, to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. Lord, we believe Jesus is coming. And we want to cooperate with you in every way possible. And we see that the first way is to join ourselves to one another and encourage one another and provoke each other to good love and to good works. Make us so mindful of your coming, Jesus, that it overshadows everything else. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you'll think on these things. I hope you'll let it be an inspiration to you to make adjustments because we all have adjustments to make. Jesus is coming. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.